Welcome to the Spirit Sisters podcast. My name is Karina Machado and I'm the author of Spirit Sisters, Women's True Stories of the Paranormal. In this podcast, I'll revisit the women behind my most unforgettable stories and unearth new tales to chill, intrigue, astound and offer hope. You'll hear first-hand accounts of ghostly visitors, near-death experiences, premonitions, hauntings and love more powerful than death. Whatever you believe about the afterlife, I invite you to open your minds and hearts as ordinary women reveal their extraordinary encounters. Hi everyone and welcome to Spirit Sisters the podcast. It's lovely to have you back, and if you're new to the show, thank you very much for joining us. This week, I have another extraordinary near-death experiencer to introduce you to. I can assure you, you won't soon forget this story about a life-changing encounter my guest had when she was a child. But before we get into that, I'd love to mention that the 10th anniversary edition of Spirit Sisters, my book that inspired this podcast, has just been released and is widely available. That a new audience can now discover this book that's so close to my heart, updated with a new cover and a new preface, is just a dream come true for me and I can't wait to hear what you think of it. Now to the episode. When Pauline Glamishak had a near-death experience after a fall at the age of 11, her spirit left her body and soared high up into the air. She even remembers feeling how freezing cold the clouds were. I had this self-awareness that all of the layers of anxiety are gone, everything's gone and I'm just my pure self, says Pauline, who's a counsellor and an artist living in Adelaide in Australia. Next came the bliss of the light, as Pauline describes it. But the otherworldly experience was only just beginning for Pauline, who soon found herself face to face with a smiling young man who radiated love. And she knew this was Jesus, mesmerised by this being who looked like a hippie, as Pauline puts it. She listened, entranced, as he shared his gentle wisdom with her. He explained the oneness to me, that everyone was equal in his eyes. And it's about focus, he said. If you look through loving eyes, you can create a beautiful life. He also said, everyone is given life to learn to love, and that includes ourselves. There is much, much more, as you'll hear in the first instalment of this special two-part interview with Pauline. I'm so thrilled to share this episode with you. Enjoy the show. Okay, welcome to Spirit Sisters, Pauline. It's so lovely to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Karina. It's a real pleasure to, to be speaking with you today. I'm very excited. Now, you and I connected on Facebook last year, and as soon as I had a taste of your extraordinary life story, which incorporates two near-death experiences, I just knew that I had to have you on the show and what an honour it would be. So thank you so much, Pauline. I'm so excited to have you here today. Oh, likewise, and um, it's, a, it's a real privilege to finally be able to share my story and I can think of no one better than than to share it with you and your listeners on your podcast I really love your podcast so 
Oh, yeah, that's so lovely to hear. Now, speaking of our listeners, let's begin with you telling them a little about yourself, who you are, your work, and a little bit about how 2020 has kicked off for you. Okay. Well, um, I'm a counsellor. Um, I formerly worked in grief and recovery and burnout, um, depression, but I'm currently working in addiction recovery. So uh, if you were to look at my LinkedIn account, though, you'd see <laughs> so many, so many careers that I've had because I guess I've had a different set of values having had a near-death experience. I've not been so attached to, you know, developing a status, I guess, and I've just said yes to every door that's open to me. So from being a hairdresser to being a real estate agent to being um, a marketing director for a shipbuilding company to being uh, working in banking and then finally life circumstances allowing me to train in, in the field of and qualify in the field of counselling. I've always, because of my near-death experience, I've, I think since the age of 17 and, and uh, discovering Jung, I've had a fascination with psychology and uh, how the human mind works. I guess um, I wanted to make sure that I was sane, you know, in a way because that, ex- that experience had left such uh, an acute impression on me, but it didn't uh, resonate with anybody else so that was um, that sort of sparked my interest but I didn't ever have well I didn't take the opportunity I didn't have the opportunity really to go into the field but you know God works in mysterious ways and uh, doors have just opened to me and and some really difficult adversities have allowed me to actually live a life that's in alignment to the kind of values and the things that I learned in my near-death experience so yeah, so that's a little bit mm. about my background. Um, how the year started, well, I, I was telling you just before we um, came on um, that, you know, some amazing doors have opened for me. So um, I just feel so hopeful about this decade and the awakening that's taking place. Spiritual experiences are becoming less stigmatised. I'm seeing more and more people come to me uh, wanting to speak of their experiences and um, it's just wonderful. It's just, I, you know, uh, from 1977 when I had my experience to now, the difference is just so heart-opening and mind-blowing. It's, it's fantastic to see so many people and people like yourself facilitating this speaking out this coming out of the closet, um, you know, this is coming out of the spiritual closet and people being all in, no longer compartmentalising, no longer denying, no longer whispering, but actually saying, no, this is a part of who I am. This is what's happened to me and actually I feel honoured that this has happened to me. I feel privileged that this has happened to me. And it's constructive to share with other people. It offers hope and a wider perspective. So, so that's that's um, that's how this decade is starting off for me. And on that kind of note, that is just lovely. Thank you for sharing that. And that's such a powerful message about adversity being sort of a jumping-off point into something beautiful. 
And that's um, often that's often the message of near-death experiences. And as our listeners will go on to hear as your story unfolds, that's certainly the prime, I guess, the primary theme of your story, Pauline. Well, yes, it is. You know, without um, going into the stories of of those um, around me too much, because they're their stories and they're their perspectives. And really, as much as it's important to feel and honour our own experience, once we can get to that place of forgiveness, we can, you know, see beyond our hurt and see what's brought them to be hurtful. So, yeah, it's and, and it's just... It's just a constant opening, I think. It's just a constant heart opening. So yeah, I don't want to talk too much about you know the um, the the adversities of my childhood or anything like that. Suffice to say that you know I came from a migrant family and who escaped communism um, because they had such social conditioning that they had no freedom of thought, freedom of faith. Uh, freedom of anything really it was such a restrictive environment and so you know they came here with my parents came here with something to prove two young children and a third you know a third was to come and so their life was very very difficult they were post-war children and um, then they came to a country where they were basically reduced to you know just being you know just for their working Working capitals. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. So um, it was quite dehumanising. And I guess that's the story of many migrants who came through in the white Australian era. Of course, it's very different today, thankfully. You know, I I think it's it's substantially different today. And we see that reflected in the media and, and, and the way that we relate to each other that segregation on matters of uh, ethnicity, although it's still, you know, still prevalent with race, I I, I understand. So um, there's still healing to be done there. But, mm-hmm. yeah, so I, I didn't have a peaceful childhood. I wasn't the star of the show in my childhood. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, I think very early on I was in the role of a counsellor and, I'm sort of grateful now because it's made me a good one. <laughs> your your two near-death experiences actually take place in your childhood. But prior to those, you had an experience when you were 18 months old, Pauline, and you can remember this. Tell us about that. I do. I, I, I remember it very well. Um, it was very short. You know, obviously I was pre-verbal, but um, I was accidentally burnt with a cigarette and from that, I developed pneumonia. I don't know how that happens. I haven't looked into that. But um, I remember, you know, being burnt and then falling sick quite quickly and ending up in the hospital and just being uh, having a, an extremely high fever and uh, just a lot of panic around me and just moving simply out of my body and, you know, from being in the fever of my body and feeling, you know, unable to breathe. And then just moving out, it was just a sense of freedom, you know. It was just a sense of real freedom. And I looked down and I just felt all, I was just euphoric to have moved out of my body at that point. And I could just see all of the nurses and all of the fussing and everything going on. And 
and I, I can't explain how I ended up back in my body, but I just did. Um, that was just a very brief out-of-body experience that I had. And then when I was, I think it was 1973, I was six or seven, and um, it was pre-insurance you know, days before <laughs> insurance ruled the world. <laughs> we, I was in grade two, I think. I just, I was still doing remedial English at the time. So we uh, went on a school excursion. We, the school was in the western suburbs of Adelaide. And so we went to the nearest beach, which was Semaphore Beach. We were sort of allowed to wade in the, you know, wade in the shallows. And the teacher sort of told us, you know, well, if you get into trouble, what to do, you know, to put your hand up and wave. And so we went off and we were all enjoying ourselves. And me and another girl got taken by Rip, taken out to sea. She didn't get taken out as far as I did, I later saw. But, um, yeah, we got taken out by Rip and tossed and turned and in for so long that, you know, when you get taken by Rip, you don't really have the opportunity to take a breath or anything like that it's such a to me as a you know a young child it was such a shock um, that I very quickly swallowed water and you know had run out of breath and when I had taken my last breath I just felt this insurgence of life force now I'd now describe it as I wouldn't have had the language for it at then at that stage and just this voice this really booming voice I felt held while I was in the rip, I tried to open my eyes and everything was blurred and sandy and muddy. I couldn't see anything and my eyes stung, so I quickly closed them again. But this voice said to me, open your eyes and just made me feel safe. It was a sort of like the euphoric feeling. Um, I was no longer in panic or going for breath. I felt like I, I had breath, although I was under under the ocean and yeah, he told me to open my eyes and um, just made me feel really safe. I, I think he said to me, you're safe. And then he just buoyed me up to the surface. And I no longer felt any sort of panic. I just buoyed up and waved my arm and then came down again because I, I wasn't a swimmer at all. Um, and then I'd buoy up again and wave my arm cool as a cucumber um, until I was saved, you know, until one of the teachers came out and brought me ashore and I did cough up a, a bit of water and um, they they took me to the office and put me in some someone's, you know, they had some spare clothes or whatever and, and promptly took me home in these weird clothes. <laughs> <laughs> the kind of things we notice when we're, um, when we're young, you know, it was yeah. just so being in another person's clothes and that different smell and all of that kind of thing, you know. Um, but yeah, so that was that experience. Um, my parents were so shocked that I didn't tell them about it. You know, mm. No way I would have told them and worried them any more than they already were. Their English wasn't that good, but you know, the main thing was that I was okay. So, yeah. and Pauline, yeah. you'd had the experience as a toddler, had that been forgotten, or had you? remembered that and did that memory come again to your awareness following this second experience of a sense that you know there's something greater out there well 
the toddler experience, I didn't really have a sense of something greater out there. Mm. I knew that I could live outside of my body. And uh, because I was pre-verbal, it was just a knowing that I kept with me, but I didn't really speak of it until my mother told me about her experience uh, during childbirth with my brother, the youngest of our family. And she um, she had an out-of-body experience during childbirth. And so I said to her, well, yeah, I had one under fever. And um, so, yeah, they've always been with me. The, the drowning experience probably was the one I least, you know, talked about, um, I least felt comfortable with because that happened when I was so young, I think, it was so insignificant to other people that you know i just i just didn't didn't bother bringing it up and having mm. the 11 year old experience well yeah i didn't connect the two when when our listeners hear the story of what happened when you were 11 they'll get more of a an idea of exactly how powerful this is but I can't imagine what it would be like to be such a small child and trying to understand. Like even if we take the drowning episode alone, how did you process that? Even though you didn't share it very much or at all, how did you think of it? I just thought, I know there's a God. I know that I know there's a God. Or whether it was my guardian angel or I just knew then that there was there was protection. So that's how I thought of it really. It was enough just to know. Yeah. And one thing that strikes me as well is that you had some challenges in your childhood. Your parents may have brought some trauma, as you said, like, you know, a story common to many migrant families. It's interesting that you had these experiences in childhood and you used the word buoyed before they lifted you. Do you feel that that was intentional, that these things were gifted to you in childhood to just help you stay afloat in life? Absolutely, Karina. Absolutely. I have no doubt about that. Um, Although I know that a lot of people, you know, have very difficult childhoods, very traumatic childhoods and don't have these kind of experiences. I don't know why. I, I really don't. I don't think I'm particularly special. Perhaps it's because I had the experience as a very young child that somehow I was opened to that knowing. And, um, yeah, some things that were told, that I was told during my near-death experience at age 11, yeah, I think that once you know something, once your mind is open to something, you, once you you have a realisation about something, then more floods in more can come in about that Um, if you're closed off or you've had no such experience or uh, no such exposure to that I think you're probably less likely to open I I don't know I really you know that's one thing I'm aware of being not all knowing (laughs) so (laughs) yeah. yeah it's a mystery please tell us what happened when you were 11 Pauline Sure. We were, it's funny how much I remember, Karina, and this mightn't be relevant to uh, your listeners, but I remember so clearly, it was autumn, driving through this beautiful avenue as we were going to the Mount Macedon uh, Ranges picnic grounds. And, you know, the light filtering in through these autumn leaves uh, with this avenue of trees, it was just 
one of the most memorable, well, it is the most memorable experience I've ever had. So we came to the picnic ground in uh, in the Mount Macedon Ranges and, of course, I didn't know at age 11 that that was a, a very spiritual place. We did go up before we went and set up for a picnic. We went up and saw that there was a and visited this massive crucifix on a hill. I think it was uh, an Anzac memorial or um, a memorial, a war memorial of some sort. And you know, since I've learnt that it is uh, considered a spiritual place for Indigenous people to consider consider it a very spiritual area. Now we arrived at the picnic ground. My parents were setting up. All the families were setting up. We came with a couple of families and they were setting up the picnic ground and we children just sprang out of the cars and ran down the hill and I raced after everybody, not thinking about the momentum building up and I, I lost my footing on a rock and instead of going with the impetus, I thought, oh, I'm going to fall on my face here and thought, no, I'm going to, no, I'm not. I'm going to fling myself back. So I flung myself back probably with too much force and later I discovered that I'd struck my right temple and um, I sort of scrunched my eyes waiting for the impact and it didn't come. So I opened my eyes and I was no longer in my body. And it's such this feeling of being out of your body is just, especially at 11, I didn't really know how to analyse it uh, as a as a toddler. But at 11, as I was moving away from my body, I, I had a glimpse of it, but I wasn't that interested because the vista of the Mount Macedon Ranges was so magnificent. Um, so as I'm moving away from my body, I, I have this self-awareness that it's like all of the layers of anxiety have gone, all of the layers of, um, you know, everything's gone and I'm just my pure self. There's no any kind of, I'm, I'm just in, completely in the moment. And um, just experience to the nth degree that just your pure experiencing of yourself and and of what is happening. And so I'm I'm moving up and I'm not even that that scared until I move through the the clouds and I'm in this whiteout and I actually felt the freezing cold of the clouds. <laughs> and um, as I moved past the freezing cold, then I sort of felt this trepidation because that was a bit of a shock to me to feel the cold. I didn't expect to feel because I didn't feel anything else, you know, any kind of bodily sensations or, but I felt cold and then I felt suddenly nervous. So I looked up and I thought, well, I looked up because I thought, well, how far am I going to go? You know, (laughs) am I just going to float into space? What's going on here? I was no longer just in the uh, bliss of the experience. And I looked up and there was this big black, tube-like portal people described as a tunnel but yeah so I moved into this portal and before I was moving up quite gently now I was you know vacuumed in into this portal and moved the sensation it was dark and um, gray black it was initially very black and then it turned grayer and I yeah just had the sensation of moving very fast and then I with the fear of being in the blackness, I looked up and saw the light. So saw this light and was very relieved to realise that I was moving towards the light. And as soon as I moved into like the periphery of the light, I suddenly felt this bliss, this 
if I was feeling good before, now, you know, multiply that. And I was feeling this familiarity, like, oh, okay. Oh, you know, I'm back. I'm I'm here again. I've returned. You know, I've done this before. And thankfully, this is where I am kind of thing. Um, just this remembering as though I'd had amnesia. And now I was, you know, coming home. And funnily enough, as a result of my fall, I did have amnesia. So I found myself back. I found myself back home <laughs> in in the bliss of the light. And um, as I, you know, experienced this familiarity, now a lot was given to me at that point too about um, I vaguely, you know, recall contact or you know uh, with light with beings of some sort but that's very very vague so I I don't want to extrapolate I don't usually extrapolate on that but I then found myself because there was like a periphery to the light and as you you could go deeper in Um, it seemed to be in another portal so I found myself on a very flat plane it was like it was a two-dimensional plane almost yeah I would say it was two-dimensional and I was in front of the portal so I was in the periphery of the light and I wanted to go into the depth of the light and I started to step forward under my own steam now I was no longer being drawn and as I started to step forward and it was like I wanted to cross cross into a threshold really um I noticed a figure was coming towards me and soon enough I saw that it was a white-robed man and as his features became clearer uh, within myself, I I had a realization. Now I have to explain that you know although my parents were raised in uh, a socialist country where they really weren't you know weren't religious, they were educated in socialism really in atheism. Um, although they are you know Christian, they're, they're Catholic and um, uh, you know, freely practiced their religion once. They mi- we migrated here, but yeah, I I sort of didn't have. Mum always prayed to us about the angels, but I didn't really have a connection with Christ. I used to go to church and look at these people praying and think, oh, geez, you know, I just don't get it, you know. <laughs> and I, I saw him just as a figure, rather macabre figure, you know, as an eleven-year-old child. I didn't really enjoy a relationship with Christ. I didn't. Um, I sort of saw him as just the story of our religion and um, I didn't have that much faith in Christ himself. I wasn't really a believer in Christ, I guess. So when I saw him coming towards me, I basically inside of myself said, you know, is that who I think it is? You know, the internal dialogue and I felt this chuckle inside of me and realised then that that was how he communicated. And he came close and I could see his features really clearly. He was just um, a man aglow. He was so beautiful. I just, um, as soon as I think of him, you know, <laughs> I get emotional as soon as I um, relive that moment of seeing him and him and look that he had for me that was um, quite amazing. And, yeah, I wasn't a believer and I, I said, you know, could that be? And he laughed. He, he imbued his laughter into me and I realised that he could read my mind and I could read his. So that was rather embarrassing. Um, and he felt my embarrassment and it was like, it's OK, you know, come to me, my child. And he called me to him, but he didn't use 
my name Pauline he used another name and I think we've talked we've spoken about it and you know the the actual because I told you I think it was a name starting with T yes and I suggested that well it just reminded me of one particular scripture which is about uh, Jesus healing the little girl who was near death or dead and I think I'd need to look up the name but it's like Talitha Talitha Kum he says which is in Aramaic and so I I, when you said it was started with T I said oh there's this story and then what did you think of that I thought that was just amazing I've I've not I'm not a bible reader you know I was not a bible reader we had Sunday school more extraordinary the whole thing Yeah. yeah Yes, yes. So when you told me that, it just added another piece to the puzzle. I haven't found uh, the passage that you spoke of, but it's um, that's extraordinary, you know. I'll send it to you. Oh, thank you. That would be wonderful. And before you go on, you mentioned the look that he had for you. What was that? Oh, Karina, it's just such love. I, I can't explain it, you know. <laughs> As soon as I recall it, I've become very, very emotional because um, it's just so beautiful. His love is so beautiful, so pure, so non-judgmental, so, um, oh, it's just the fullness, a fullness like you've, you know, we just don't know on earth. It's so beautiful. Um, Here we go. (laughs) Excuse me. Not at all. Um, Not at all. (laughs) You must understand that every time I do retell it, I relive it. So, and I am, in a way, I'm an 11-year-old child again, um, which is rather embarrassing. But um. <laughs> It's lovely. It's lovely. And you know you're not alone in that. So many near-death experiences, no matter if the event happened 10 years ago or 50 years ago, they will respond in the same way you are now as they retell and relive. You know, I've heard countless reports and I've listened to so many accounts and they they weep. And that's one of the things that I think makes the near-death experience such such a powerful testament to something extraordinary happening because there's no way to imagine that any sort of hallucination or brain-deprived-of-oxygen moment is going to create an effect that will be this powerful for decades and decades and decades to come, an emotional impact like this. Well, yes, it's 42 years since it happened, you know. So, yes, um, yeah, it, it is. I can't I can't help but get emotional. I, I sort of wish that <laughs> I could tell it with more um, authoritarian adult conviction. but <laughs> <laughs> Not at all, no, this is lovely. <laughs> But it is a heart-opening experience, and I'm, I feel very blessed for that. I, I actually um, feel very blessed that I can feel all of my emotions. And um, so, yeah, that was that aspect of the experience. It was very beautiful. And just recently, I I asked him. A girlfriend um, said to me, "Oh, Pauline, just ask him. Ask him um, to help you." make an image of your near-death experience and I asked him to make and help me make an image of when he first looked at me and I just quickly made this sketch and it's just in black and white I haven't it's so intimidating to try and paint um, and I do do a lot of art um, to try and paint uh, 
any kind of image of this because it's so huge an experience. So it's difficult to know where to start. But he actually guided my hand and I'm quite pleased with the image that uh, came across. It's, yeah, it's very, wow. very accurate to, yeah. So, yeah, then then I, um, I felt, as he hugged me, I felt ashamed, you know. I felt embarrassed that I hadn't believed in him. And um, at this point, I just found myself, I just fell to, fell to his feet. Um, and this I know now, you know, that uh, there are a lot of examples in the Bible of people falling to his feet, not the least of which was um, a woman who had um, problems with her bleeding, with her period. And um, coincidentally... One of the most unclean things that you could, in that time, in the first century, in that in the Jewish religion, you were an outcast, you exactly. know, and that was one of the things that would have made a person an outcast. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, wouldn't you know it, I had this, a similar experience that, you know, I had to go and have a, a hysterectomy for that reason. I later on, you know, in, um, at around the age of 40, I um, I also had to, you know, I had that problem with bleeding later on. But I didn't make any kind of connection with that at the time because I really compartmentalised the experience. But anyway, back to the experience, I found myself at his feet and now I looked at his foot. It was in a Roman sandal. It was in a beautiful, uh, his foot was beautiful. It was in a leather sandal. And as I like took in his foot and how beautiful even his foot was, I then, because it's your focus is like very pinpoint. My focus was very pinpoint. And so I moved to look to take in the whole of his leg. And then I saw the light um, through his leg, through his foot, sorry. And uh, then I, you know, another realisation came over me that the crucifixion was real. Oh, so you were seeing the light through a wound in his foot? Well, it didn't look like a wound. It was just a hole. Yeah, it was just a hole in his foot and it was quite perfect, as was the rest of him. Yes, so this light shone through and I realised when the realisation came over me that the crucifixion was real, he imbued a very short snippet of the uh, experience of the crucifixion to me. And um, what was that like? You you felt you felt a little hint of it, did you? I felt like I was a drop of his blood that fell on the pavement, that fell on the rocky, on the cobbled street or a pearl of sweat, that was what I felt like. And I said to him, I felt I felt just how huge the suffering was, I just just for a very short time. And, and I, then I just said to him, does it still hurt? And he said to me, not anymore. And then he just, I was transported through looking at this light, I was transported. It doesn't happen chronologically, so, but I have to tell it chronologically. Um, I was immediately transported. Um, or had a, I was, again, like in a whiteout, in a gold whiteout, goldy. And um, 
when I could see again, I was in a glary realm uh, above this crowd of people. I was descending and I was above this crowd of people who was just vitriolic. They were yelling and baying. It was like war. I didn't make the connection. I was, you know, you're in the experience and things are just like unfolding to you. I didn't make the connection that I was at the station of the cross, which the first station of the cross, which I later researched where he'd projected me. And I was put next to this woman. She was, um, I didn't know who she was, but I felt love emanating from her. She was sort of raised on this step that was a little higher than the crowd. Again, there were other people against uh, with her. She wasn't alone on this step. It was, uh, you know, just another platform where people were watching this event take place. I didn't see the event taking place. My focus was just purely put on her. Um, she was an older woman. She looked Palestinian rather than anything. Yeah, she she looked Palestinian to me. And Could you she her features. Yes, um, she was. Um, very lined, dark, dark tanned skin. Um, she had quite a strong nose and um, she was older, you know, she was much older. She looked much older. She had a, sort of a brown hessian sort of scarf and black or blue indigo kind of, um, she was in indigo and brown and this black tendril of her hair it was really black, her hair, and it fell out of her scarf. And she was just covering her face and her mouth with her scarf. And she was weeping, but it was like she had to be secretly weeping. And she was trembling. Um, and I could just feel everything from her. And it was such deep. I've never f- experienced such deep sorrow, helplessness, but courage, faith. prayer, so much was going on and so much hurt and um, it was like I had the ultimate empathy and I think when he, when I couldn't stand any more of that, he just brought me back to him and as soon as he brought me back, I was in his glory, like it was his glory was amplified and it was, um, you know, basically when I asked him, if it still hurt, he showed me that it still hurt because it hurt his mother so. That's how I interpret it now. So when you were seeing the scene and you are painting it so beautifully that you're transporting us all there, thank you, Pauline, and it's almost like watching a historical film or being in the middle of some amazing you know, document. When you were in the midst of that, did you know who she was? No. Okay. No. It was only when then you were back with him that he let you know, he imbued you with the knowledge of who she was. No, he didn't even imbue me with the knowledge. It's just what I've, um, well, if he did, my childish mind didn't retain that. I've just uh, made the connection now that it must have been his mother. Okay. Yes, um, because he didn't dwell on that. As soon as I was back with him, it was all about his glory and how he was, so, you know, how he celebrated that he was able to do this for the world and how the world was saved through that act. So he showed me his sadness and then he showed me it was just his glory amplified. When I was back with him, it was just, you know, 
he was just so honest. He was such a man, but he was God. You know, <laughs> it's it's so difficult to to describe. He was, um, you know, he he obviously did have suffering, but it was like he said, well, all of the physical suffering was worth it in very basic terms. I'm I'm putting it in my eleven uh, year old language now, <laughs> but <laughs> that was what he imparted to me that that hurt him the most that it had hurt his mother so much as far as it happening he was just elated to have been able to do that and Pauline can I ask you because the listeners will want me to ask you this as well what did he look like ah oh, he looked like a hippie ah, <laughs> and that's a little he was he had long hair he had long wavy hair he was um you know he wasn't curfewed you know like a but he was just perfect and he had a um a strong jaw he had a, such warmth in his smile and in his eyes it was just uh, just yeah, he was beautiful. He had a strong nose as well and sort of uh, his lips were beautiful. That's what I remember. I don't know why I remember that so much because he didn't talk with his mouth, but I don't know if I was shy to look into his eyes so much, but I remember his lips and uh, they were just so full and beautiful. He was chiselled, you know, had a chiselled face, but he looked Middle Eastern. You know, he didn't look... He didn't look like any particular race. I know this sounds weird, but he had more of a, you know, Mediterranean kind of look to him than, uh, you know, he wasn't blonde. <laughs> he wasn't blonde. What colour was his hair and his eyes? It was brown, brown hair. But you know what? I really, to, I, and I have to be completely honest, I mm. can't remember the look, the colour of his eyes. But as you said, you didn't sort of, lift your eyes that much you were mainly focused maybe from shyness and that is so characteristic of a little child as well that you didn't focus look up yeah yeah much yeah (laughs) yeah I like to be honest I'd love to be able to say you know I saw flames in his eyes and I probably did look a lot into his eyes but I I just can't remember the color for whatever reason it's not been given to me to remember that and what sort of age did he come across? Oh, yeah, he would have been 33. Um, he was just the most handsome man I've ever seen, really. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Well, sorry, I interrupted you because I had to ask that burning question. Now, oh, um, a, ask me about him today. I'll just, I'll, I can just sit here and talk about how gorgeous he was all day because he really, <laughs> he was extraordinary, extraordinarily handsome. So. Um, yeah, but that's not helpful to your listeners. <laughs> I'm sure they'll be just laughing up every moment of this, no doubt. So what happened next? So you've been, you were taken to the scene of one of the scenes of the passion, as it's described, and now you're back with him. And then what's next? So um, after he explained to me that he'd, he explained the oneness to me then, you know, that everybody was equal in his eyes. And uh, that he died for the whole world, that it wasn't just for Catholics or Christians or, you know, um, he really imbued that understanding in me. And then he asked me to come and sit with him on a rock. 
And I think this was where he wanted to show me. Again, he didn't speak this knowledge into me, but it's what I have um, deduced from contemplating my experience. And um, he took me to sit on a rock and now I had a body, whereas before when he'd uh, projected me, I didn't have a body. Um, So I was sitting on this rock and dangling my legs over this ledge and below us there was he just let me take in this beautiful galaxy um, a nebula and um, it was just like you know the aurora borealis it was so colorful and I was so thrilled to to find the NASA impressions of galaxies and and I've actually even researched that and, and I think it was Orion because it wasn't round like Andromeda was um I think it was the Orion Nebula, and uh, it was just stunning. And He just let me sit there and take it all in, and then I turned around to him and he said, look here, my child, you can sense what he wants you to do and you just want to please him. So he he said, look here, my child, and he swept his right arm in front of us, and suddenly his arm was larger than it was before, and um, in the traces of his arm, like the energy that was left behind in his arm, this book just materialised, it formed. And it was a large book and it was just tilted towards us as though it was on a book stand, but it was just elevated in space. And um, I looked into the book and it was like this flickery movie, this flickering film, like the old, old-fashioned, you know, the old um, first motion pictures. And... I remember there was something written in the front, but I can't remember now what it was on the first page. And we opened the first page and then the movie unfolded. And it was what I remember was just the story of these people. And they were beautiful. Everybody in this story was just so beautiful. And um, I looked in and I just became immersed in this story. But I didn't recognize at all that it was my story until I um transgressed against uh, a friend and I really hurt her and uh, so, so many I, years later you you understood the the significance of this story only many years later is that right Pauline? No I understood when he showed me my well what I now know is called my a life review when he showed me that and I saw the transgression that I'd oh, made oh, oh. I immediately knew when I felt the hurt that I'd caused this friend of mine who I later took to be my uh, confirmation godmother. When I saw the the pain that I'd caused her, I realised the penny dropped. Oh, this is my life story. And I turned around to him. I realised immediately. And I turned around to him and I said, but, but, you know, but, 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 you know, she'd hurt me and it was sort of tit for tat or whatever. And he didn't say anything. He didn't condemn me. But I felt condemned within myself. You know, I, I felt I knew that I'd done the wrong thing. And so I said to him, but so what's life about anyway? I, I just don't get it. I don't know how to live if I, you know, because I, I thought to myself, if I'm defending myself and, and that's wrong, well, then how do I live, you know? <laughs> and um, Yeah, fair question, yeah. 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 And I said that to him and he said, um, he just answered immediately and, uh, with, uh, life is about love and it's your job, you know, basically he let me know that to love is what life is about, you know, to love. And I said, but I can't, you know, I don't understand because nobody lives like that, you know. You don't understand. Nobody lives like that on earth. And he just like smiled at me with, <laughs> with this big understanding smile but also a little bit like our child, you know. 
<laughs> and now that I look back on it, it's like an 11-year-old child telling Jesus, you don't understand. <laughs> yeah. uh, and he is, you know, he just showed me that he reigns over the galaxies and, you know, he, uh, yeah, he just smiled at me when I said that. And then he, I said, well, how do I live? How do I do this life? Because I don't know. I, he didn't make me look back and move further. I didn't want to look back because I knew that beyond that mistake, I'd made many. I'd hurt people many times after that. If that was um, hurtful, I didn't want to know any more of the hurt that I'd caused. But there are things that he showed me. He he said to me then, look, how do I live? I said, and he said, oh, it's about focus. If you look through loving eyes and if you focus, you can create a beautiful life. This all sounded fantastic and I did believe him to an extent, but there was still some reservation in me. And at the same time, he let me know, I sort of knew by him giving me this um, information and showing me my life review, there was this uh, knowing that came over me that, you know, he, I would be going back and I wouldn't be staying. So he talked to me about focus, you know, and uh, how important that was. And it's only now, you know, of course, after uh, becoming somewhat psychoeducated and going through all that I went through, that I understand that we can choose our thoughts and that we can choose our emotions, that we create our life by what we focus on. At age 11, I didn't understand the truth in that at all. So as yeah. part of this life review experience that is manifesting as this sort of book of your life, did you only see this one incident? Is that what he chose to focus on or did you see more of a, a broader look at your life or was it mainly just this one moment of transgression as you called it? No, I saw that's the thing. So it's a, um, he showed me, I didn't realise it was our family because now I know that he was showing me how he sees us. So I was looking at everything through his eyes. So I was seeing everybody through his eyes. And they were so much more beautiful than we see one another, more beautiful than we see ourselves. So to the point that it wasn't recognisable to me because I'd cast, you know, and we cast such aspersions upon one another and upon ourselves. So he was talking to you about focus, but not only that, he was actually showing you his focus. Absolutely, absolutely, Karina. That's you've got it. Um, you've got it in one. So it's not just about the fact that I transgressed. He also showed me how lovingly, because you know my parents were adults then. You know they they'd made transgressions up to that point, but he didn't show me anyone's transgressions. He showed everyone as perfect and beautiful, really extraordinarily, pearlescently beautiful. It was. Um, yeah, the beauty. I thought I was watching a, a, some kind of Hollywood, some amazing Hollywood production. You know, I, didn't, I just didn't, um, yeah. And when did it dawn on you that these were your people, your family? Well, when I felt the hurt of the hurt that I'd caused Lydia, my um, my my friend, and I... Um, yeah, then everything like then everything clicked. It was like everything dawned on me at, at that point. I didn't suddenly look ugly or anything, but I could feel her emotion. I don't know why he showed me that point. Perhaps up until that point, I think I was around six or so when that happened, and six or seven. 
I think six. I, I was very young. So up until that point, I probably hadn't really heard anybody to that significant an extent, you know. And even as a six or seven year old, you know, how much of that is can be malicious. No, exactly. So yeah. I think showing me empathy he certainly didn't make me feel debilitating guilt or anything like that Um, I guess in your young life this was probably the most helpful example to use for a girl who was only 11 yes yeah yeah and it was important for me to develop empathy um, because I now see that if I hadn't and if I'd reacted in a way that was you know Um, isolating myself from people who had hurt me, then goodness knows what kind of life I'd have, you know. (laughs) I really am blessed in many ways for for everybody in my life. I'm I'm absolutely blessed, completely blessed. So um, for all of the hurt and for everything. So, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm really glad that he showed me empathy to this, to this degree. And he told me just plainly that, Life, our life is everyone is given life to learn to love. And uh, that includes ourselves. We have to learn to love ourselves. Oh, yes. Mm. Yes. So that was part of the message as well, self-love? Well, now I, there's so many things that were communicated without words and without him telling me, but by showing, you know. And so I think him showing how he looks at us is how we should also consider ourselves. Who are we to denigrate his creation? Who are we to denigrate ourselves if God sees us as beautiful and perfect? Of course, in strength, you know, in in a strength-based or positive psychology, we learn that really that's the only way that things change. We don't create with negativity. We destroy with negativity. We only create change with saying yes and leaning in and and um, focusing on the strengths and the beauty in a situation. Yeah, it correlates a lot with the kind of evolving psychology that we're seeing today. That's um, one of the most beautiful aspects of your story and that continual opening and, you know, it continually gives. Yes, it does. It really does. What happened next? Where are we? Uh, the life review, the book. Ah, uh, yes, Telling, yeah, so now he's telling me about focus. And now this is where, you know, it's sort of people don't like it because, you know, a, a lot of it's difficult for Christians to grasp because they they believe that this is a, a bit new agey. I think Eckhart Tolle has, um, has said this. But I, I, I do believe that a lot of people channel, channel, channel his, just as uh, we mentioned, A Course in Miracles and, Eckhart Tolle and a lot of wisdom teachers channel his wisdom. These aren't things that come from us. These are things that come from God, but they're given through people who are so devoted to their spiritual connection with God that they facilitate him speaking through them. So that's my understanding. He told me about focus and that I could actually create my life and you know by choosing thought and and it didn't really make sense to me but so I, I because it didn't make sense I just pleaded with him to stay and I just please I, I, I don't want to be parted from your love you know you don't understand this now that I know your love there's no love like yours on earth and, and he said to me you will not be parted from my love you can reach out to me 
whenever you need my love. Of course, when I came back into my earthly self, that the truth of that completely it disappeared for a long time, too long, and until he reached out to me. So um, he then convinced me that I needed to go back and he didn't tell me. He wanted me to choose to go back and he convinced me by showing me two scenes that I remember very strongly. The other scenes I don't know, but I remember he, he showed me a young man who smiled at me with such loving eyes that I knew that I would have love in, on earth that was huge and unconditional and the kind of love that I really wanted. And uh, being 11, I, t- I thought to myself, you know, um, that it was my future husband and, you know, this was the future partner or it was only later that I realized when my son was in his 20s and because he showed me this picture of a, a young man smiling at me very lovingly and I was in the kitchen with my son and he was helping me with something and he just looked at me and said something blah 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 mum and I just looked up at him he was looking at me so lovingly and I realized that it was him wow. and, I was, <laughs> and I was like hugged him and he was just like oh mum you know <laughs> You know, I just teared up and I thought, oh, my goodness, it was my son all along. Yeah, so that was mind-blowing. And then he also showed me a photo, uh, well, a a scene from behind me where I think it was me. (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was me. But I was on the stage and I was talking to a very large crowd of people and it was a blue backdrop. There was a lot of light and it was like, you know, gymnasium or something and I was talking to a lot of people and um, I thought wow so do you want me to tell people of this because they don't know that this is what you're like and they don't know that love's about life's about love and he laughed at me then Um, I wonder whether he laughed because he knew it would take me 42 years (laughs) and that it um and that it wouldn't be as easy as I thought it would. Um, and he said, yes, I do want you to do that. So I think there were three times that, or twice that he laughed. You know, and his laugh is not condescending. It's just, you just, um, it, was, it was just a joy to amuse him, you know, <laughs> to be amusing to him. And um, he's got a great sense of humour. And um, I've heard that before in other accounts as well, that certainly the sense of humour of the divine comes through these um, NDE accounts and it's very beautiful. Yes, so so he showed me this and I thought, wow, this is amazing. This is a wonderful life. And he said, yes, it is. And with that, you know, because in, in my heart I had agreed, okay, you know, I didn't want to miss out on this love and I didn't want to miss out on the experience of my life. And the next minute I knew... I was, and I, I sort of feel like I was whooshed back, or my a point of my consciousness was just, uh, oh, I don't know, a point, the point of my consciousness was just projected back into my body on earth. That's what I feel like. That's mm. how I can describe it. And with my consciousness coming back to uh, whether it was my entire consciousness or not, I'm unsure of that. Yes, that's um, what I was wondering. I was about to ask you that when you described it as a point of your consciousness. Interesting. Yeah. So I, you know, I was back in my body. I could feel this, the, the weirdest thing happened, Karina, this dog. And I'm, I'm very connected to dogs and animals. And this dog had come up and he was licking my right temple. A beagle had come out of nowhere 
And before I opened my eyes, when I just felt myself back in my body, I felt this licking at my temple. And um, it so happened that I'd hit my right temporal lobe. And um, I opened my eyes and I could see the clouds. It was almost like they were forming right in front of me as I was looking up into the sky. And so my awareness came, you know, started to come out of me and project to take in the whole of the environment. And I heard everybody running towards me. And when they came, I didn't recognise them at all. I didn't recognise my mother or father or any of my family. And um, they uh, they swooped me up and put me in the car and took me to the doctor. But as soon as I could talk and was well enough, you know, I had this horrible headache. But I said to them, you've got to listen to me. Jesus is real. You know, I didn't know. They were all, you know, um, flustered because I didn't recognise them. And I was just wanting to tell them, Jesus is real. You know, he he. Jesus was real. I was just with Jesus and they that concerned them even more. So they took me to the doctor and sat me down and said, you tell him, <laughs> you tell him what you tell him. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and the doctor said, oh, right, temporal lobe, this is a form of brain damage. This is what happens when there's brain damage. Um, and, you know, my parents hearing brain damage, well, that was shocking. That, that 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 was too much to cope with, I think. And I certainly didn't want to distress them. So it was impressed upon me not to speak of it. And when did your memory come back? When did you realise, again, that these were your parents? Uh, look, that came back within, oh, I think it was four or five hours. Okay, okay. Yeah. So it wasn't chronic, It was, but it was acute. I could still speak and I could, uh, you know, I knew what the car was. I knew, you know, I had this, it wasn't um, It wasn't so bad. But, yeah, it was only four or five hours, perhaps even shorter. But that's what, it, that's what I feel like it was about that. And what about your experience itself, Pauline? Do you have any idea how long in Earth time, because I realise, as you said earlier, there's no chronology, there's no time in that realm, but... In Earth time, how long do you think you were out for, unconscious for? Well, that's the thing. That's why nobody believed me um, is because I wasn't out for very long, mm. not long at all, maybe four minutes, five minutes, not very long. And it was, but it was such a huge experience. So much happened within the experience. And I think people have a real difficulty understanding that time is over here. It's slowed for some reason. I don't know why, but it's, um, it, it moves differently in his realm. I think it's to do with, I think it's like, a, I used to think it was a fourth dimension, but now I think it's more like a first and second dimension first and second dimension realm, because if you remember anything about your maths studies in year 10. Um, we'll no. Talk about, <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that the first dimension is a plane and it's invisible yeah. and the second dimension is a, a straight line right. that has no no width or depth or, yeah, so that's what it feels like. It was, uh, it was in a different dimension, so different rules applied, not the same kind of rules. Pauline, I think that that might be a good place to leave episode one. Yes, I, I, I think so. I think we've really delved into a lot here. So we'll leave episode one there. And when we come back in episode two, we will pick up the aftermath of your near-death experience and 
all that unfolded after that. Thank you so much for sharing this absolutely beautiful experience with us today. And I cannot wait to share the rest of it with our audience. Oh, it's a pleasure and a privilege, Karina. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Spirit Sisters, the podcast, based on my best-selling book of the same name. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and will join me again next time for another intriguing conversation exploring mysteries and marvels. In the meantime, please subscribe so that you won't miss an episode. I also welcome your feedback, so please message me through my website, karinamachado.com, or find me on Facebook at Karina Machado Author. Perhaps you have your own encounter to share. If so, I'd love to hear it. After all, there's nothing more powerful than a story. Thank you.